Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Pierre Dussoge. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Pierre is a person. Professor Dussoge is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar. And finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Dussoge is an expert in strategic alliances and an active member of the SMS, the AOM, and the European Management Association. He has served as the editor-in-chief of European Management Review and sits on the board of several top journals in the field. He has received or was nominated for best paper awards at SMS. He is the author or co-author of several books in management, strategic technology management, and alliances. His 1995 book received the McKinsey Award for Best Management Book published in France. Thank you, uh, Pierre, for joining us. Thank you for having me with you. Uh, Pierre, uh, let's start with your uh, early beginnings. Uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, this may sound very strange and politically incorrect, but I wanted to become a bullfighter, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> When I was a child, uh, I used to drive through Spain with my parents a lot. And um, my parents would leave me in their hotel room. I guess they'd probably go to jail for that today. And uh, while I waited for them in the hotel room, uh, I felt uh, very jealous that I couldn't go to bullfights, but I saw pictures I could see on TV. And uh, I thought this looked like the best job in the world. Uh, obviously, I'm glad I didn't pick that. I probably wouldn't be here anymore, but still. And uh, this, is, this is actually quite funny. Uh, so where did you grow up? In Spain? No, I grew up in Tangiers in Morocco. Okay. So my parents met in Morocco. They arrived there by chance, both, both of them sort of separately and uh, I guess they produced me somewhere along the way. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, okay, uh, I normally ask uh, when can you remember the first moment of difference between domestic and international? I you mean, should, you should. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, it. <laughs> when is the earliest moment of awareness between domestic and international? Um, well, actually, I'd like to turn the question around okay. because my understanding was that everything was very multinational from the start. Mm. Uh, so sort of domestic or country of origin was a very remote notion um, because I was born and grew up in Tangiers and Tangiers was an international zone. So actually, it was run by a consortium of countries, I don't remember exactly which, but the US, Russia, or the Soviet Union, I should say, Britain, Spain, France, and a few others. And um, it was, um, I guess I, I took this for granted that, you know, you met people and some people were of Italian origin, some people were of French origin. There were Moroccans, of course, but... Uh, a lot of the Moroccans in Tangiers didn't really speak Arabic because they spoke Berber rather than Arabic. Um, and uh, they spoke a lot of Spanish because Tangiers was sort of uh, a part of the Spanish protectorate on the north of Morocco. 
So it was a very, very global setting uh, at the beginning. And everyone sort of talked of their country of origin as though it were some very distant, remote place without really knowing what it was like. Um, and uh, I guess that's my first uh, understanding of uh, different nationalities and uh, places to live. Very interesting. Uh, Pierre, uh, how did you choose academia? Um, I didn't choose. Uh, academia chose me. Um, I, well, the, the French, so my, my mother was American and my father was French. So I did my very early schooling in the U.S. system in Tangiers. And then um, I don't know exactly why, but I think the French school was considered to be sort of slightly better. I was moved into the French system. And the French system is very sort of uh, elitist in some ways uh, with, and I don't mean this to be necessarily very good, but it sort of takes you to your limit and pushes you through the system. And uh, in particular, they have this, these sort of so-called elite schools called grandes écoles. And um, I went to one where, where I work, where I have worked for the past uh, almost 40 years, which is HEC. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't even know what a company was. I had no idea what management was, but sort of my grades in high school made me the perfect candidate to enter this particular school rather than engineering or something else where uh, I guess my skills would have had to be slightly different. And um, when, I, when I finished HEC, in those days, there was military service in France, which I didn't feel very attracted by, or an alternative, which you could do twice the length, but you had to do it abroad. It was a sort of a Peace Corps type thing. And uh, I happened to be sent to Mexico. And it was on a job where it was to help in the collaboration between the faculty of HEC and a Mexican university. And I got to know a lot of faculty while I was there. I sort of served them as a, I guess, factotum slash tourist guide slash I would help in anything. Um, but when I came back to France after my two years in Mexico, I thought I would find a normal manager's job, you know, just the, the norm. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I was uh, asked if I wanted to be a TA, RA for one of the faculty that I'd met while I was in Mexico and just as a, you know, short-term job waiting to get a real job. And um, I guess I, I did, a, uh, I was there for a while, uh, found it interesting and uh, thought, you know, this looks pretty cool. Why not try this? And then they told me, oh, but there's a slight problem. If you want to get a job here, you need to get a PhD first. Mm. So then I scratched my head and sort of thought if I went away, I wouldn't get a, my job would be given to someone else. Mm -hmm. So I decided to get a PhD in Paris and uh, kept on to my sort of, it was an assistant job at the beginning and slowly turned into a faculty job. In those days, there was no formal hiring process. There was no tenure track. It was a very, very strange environment. And um, so I guess I just ended up there. My only contact with academia is that my father 
was a literature, a university literature professor. And um, his dissertation was on Hemingway, believe it or not. Um, but I had no particular interest in being be becoming a, a, a management or a business academic. Uh, I just sort of ended up there by chance, but uh, I can't say I regret it. On the contrary, I'm pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Hemingway wrote all about it. The bullfighter, the short yes. stories, the 25 minutes, little cigars. Uh, <laughs> yes. Super interesting. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people will find interesting on top of everything that you just explained. Um, well, I have a, an interest in, I was going to say collecting. It's not really collecting. I'm interested in strange objects. So um, <laughs> I like what? to go to auction sales and uh, I buy what uh, most of the people around me find very strange. But uh, uh, on the piece of furniture right across from me here, there is a marble skull, which uh, supposedly is uh, 17th century Italian. Um, and uh, I have some Mayan eccentrics, which most people probably don't know what they are, but they're carved uh, pieces of, uh, of chert. Uh, and they're, they're called eccentrics because they were carved to be as complicated and difficult to make as possible, but had no use whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I like going to, um, to auction sales. And I went once with a friend who's a gambler and he said, oh, this feels very much like a casino. So I guess <laughs> I get the same kind of thrills out of uh, bidding as maybe some people do out of a casino. I'm not a gambler. I'm too risk averse, but uh, still. Uh, do, do you sell the stuff you buy or you just keep? Well, I'm not very good at selling. I just keep it. And so I have way too much. And I'm afraid that uh, when my kids have to dispose of it, it's going to be a complicated task for them. <laughs> but uh, their bad luck, not mine. <laughs> but I enjoy I enjoy it. Uh, I like to go back and look at what I have. And I like to think of it as a cabinet of curiosities, which was something that uh, in the, between the 16th and the 19th century was very fashionable in Europe. Where do you find the auction houses? Like, where is the auction? Like, how, how do you find them? Well, now they're more and more online, but hmm. um, there's, uh, there are, I guess it's a profession. They're like Christie's is an auction house. Sotheby's okay. is an auction house. Okay. And they have their own premises. And uh, it's much more fun going on site than doing it online. Because uh, there is a, an adrenaline rush. So you can spend thousands of dollars in a few seconds, literally. And some people literally spend millions of dollars. But uh, I'm not in that league. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Um, yes, I think, um, well, I, I would have liked to be an archaeologist. Uh, I love going to old ruins, if possible, in remote places that are little explored. And uh, I think my dream would have been Howard, being Howard Carter and finding Tutankhamun's tomb or something similar. 
uh, or Hiram Bingham and Machu Picchu, something like that. <laughs> I love this idea of lost cities and uh, sort of remote places. Um, I normally ask what's the biggest failure and what you learn from it. Uh, what do you learn from, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Um, well, I don't know if it's my biggest failure, but it's at least a professional failure. I, I feel embarrassed in hindsight. Um, when I got my first sabbatical, I thought it would be a good idea to go to the U.S. Mm -hmm. just because I guess the U.S. in those days, this was in the 80s, so it was a long time ago, uh, was seen as sort of the mecca of... Uh, Oops, a religion's comment, but <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but uh, or the Jerusalem of uh, of management and business in general, and um, I spent uh, one semester at Michigan and one semester at NYU. Mm -hmm. And uh, very kindly, the people at NYU asked me if I wanted to give a research presentation. And uh, I went to talk about what I was working on. And uh, I could see on their faces that something was not right. And I think that uh, what we used to call research in Europe in those days um, was not seen as sort of legitimate research in US business schools. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't figured that out. And I think actually it was extremely helpful because it made me understand sort of how academia can be many different sort of things. And I don't necessarily rank order it in terms of value, but uh, I do think that sort of more positivistic research, you know, where you test hypotheses and so on. I sort of figured out through that somewhat embarrassing and slightly traumatic event. And um, luckily, I guess I was, Early on, I sort of got, I became aware of this and I was among the first uh, with a, a handful of colleagues at HEC who started trying to publish in, uh, you know, whatever, what we would call academic journals today. Whereas the style of the house, but like at many places, it was the same at Bocconi, it was the same in many business schools throughout Europe, your sort of the thing to do was to write books. And uh, sometimes it could be textbooks. Sometimes it was more sort of in, I don't know, sort of points of view uh, type books, you know, or books with a, with a kind of thesis, but that would clearly not fit what we call research today. And I think becoming aware of that early enough in my career was extremely helpful and sort of has, has uh, helped me ever since. It's actually one of the questions uh, I normally ask about uh, how did the, uh, the field evolve over time? And we're talking about 40 years, like we're talking about the 40 year evolution. Well, and unfortunately, I'm, I have a long career behind me, uh, <laughs> but... Uh... But uh, some European schools and some Scandinavian schools, especially like, um, like the Danish uh, or the Stockholm school, uh, they didn't really make a uh, switch very early on. 
right? I think they, they were one of the early ones. Uh, why do you think this change happens? Why, why is the difference between the European style of research and the American style of research uh, so different? So, I mean, I think uh, at least in social, uh, I think the, the, the picture would be very different in hard sciences, but in, in, so in, I don't know, physics or chemistry or in math, actually. Now, I, I'm not sure what research in math really is. I wouldn't know how to describe it. I'm not knowledgeable enough. But in social sciences, I think uh, um, the way research was done had sort of evolved out of, I feel like saying the Middle Ages, out of, you know, the the traditional universities of Bologna, Salamanca, La Sorbonne, these kinds of places, and where you became a respected academic because you sort of knew everything on a topic and uh, you could sort of position things relative to each other. You had a very broad sort of body of knowledge, more than creating I think the the un, the implicit notion was that uh, uh, there this was not a field that could lend itself to experiments and sort of you didn't test things like you did in in hard sciences mm. and uh, and then I think systems tend to sort of uh, there's a lot of momentum in how how systems function. And um, the only, I mean, in, in continental Europe, at least, one of the only schools that sort of did research the U.S. way, and I'm going to say the U.S., but obviously it's mm -hmm. broader than that, was INSEAD. And um, even INSEAD came to that, I would argue, maybe in the late, late 60s, probably. Um, and um, I think, HEC sort of came to it because they were so close to INSEAD. And so there was a bit of a, you know, sort of both bewilderment and uh, sort of interest in what was going on. And then we started going to conferences. Um, my first conference was the SMS in Singapore, which was a, a, an interesting event. Um, and SMS in those days was trying, I think, to make strategy. So I guess maybe I'm in the, the wrong place right now, but I think of myself more as a strategy scholar than really as an IB scholar. Um, and um, I think in Europe, it's very difficult to do strategy without it having an international component to it, unless you look at very, very small industries or very local industries. But uh, I mean, in a, even in a country like France or Germany, you've, if not covered the country pretty fast, but um, you know, you you drive a few hours and you're out of the country. So I think firms actually didn't think, or I think going back even quite a while. I think it was more spontaneous, natural, obvious for companies to try to do business in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. um, so. I, actually, you're right. Uh, 
it is more correct to say pure strategy research. And then there is, you know, management research, which is also international. And um, I want to ask you about um, what are the next five to 10 years? Well, what's the next big question? Or what are the understudied areas, uh, especially with the international focus? It can be international entrepreneurship, international management from any kind of perspective. So I think there still is a long way to go in really understanding sort of how companies can either reproduce or recreate the success that they've had in their proximate sort of market. Mm -hmm. I won't call it domestic necessarily. And... Um, um, I think, you know, there's all this discussion in strategy about what is competitive advantage. Does the notion really exist? And um, um, I, I think I share in a lot of these doubts. And I don't mean doubt as, as questioning prior, I'm, I'm not sure we could call it findings, but prior conceptualizations. Um, but it's more Many companies actually not only survive, but do reasonably well without necessarily having a competitive advantage. And it's not because competition doesn't happen, uh, but it's so. And I think if you, if you add to that this idea of going abroad, it sort of makes the mystery even bigger. Uh, you see companies not doing that well at home and actually doing, getting their big break sort of in foreign markets sometimes. Um, and uh, I guess we've probably all taught the Honda case. Uh, and uh, so Honda, at least the, the story was that Honda wasn't doing too well in Japan and then actually was very successful in foreign markets. Um, and I don't, again, I, I don't think we understand sort of these mechanisms very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it is this question of, of, you know, where does success come from? And uh, in particular, if you add this, this uh, sort of multiple markets dimension to it that I think add to the, mm -hmm. to the, to the mystery. About uh, uh, creativity and coming up with these creative ideas. Uh, how does one do that? How, how do you come up with a great idea, great paper? How do you defend it? How do you sell the idea? Um, well, I think, interestingly enough, I think some of the most creative ideas are questioning what we find obvious. And um, so, you know, it's think it's obvious to everyone that the world is flat. And questioning that, I think, is extremely creative. And I know this is far from management, but I think uh, someone like Coase asking this question, but why, you know, why do firms exist, mm -hmm. uh, is in the same sort of realm as questioning the fact that the earth is, is flat 
um, it's uh, everybody would actually try and you know if we try it with our students just the look on their face suggests that you've gone mad if they haven't read goes or know of goes so you say you know but why do firms exist it's like you know what's happened to him uh, and it takes a lot of effort to sort of argue that you know when we when we discuss firms there is a question which is why why do firms emerge as a as a way to operate or to undertake economic activity why do we need somewhat stable organizations and on and on and i'm not saying transaction costs is the only way to explain it but um, but i think that that kind of question is is what i find the most the most creative innovative and sort of gets me thinking a lot actually you're right i mean you know people normally treat uh, theory of the firm as a main uh, strategy seminar right Actually, theory of the firm is quite international uh, in its essence. Yes. And um, I want to ask you about, for the sake of time, about uh, advice and mentoring. What was the best advice you received when you were going through the process? It was quite different uh, process for you, but what was the best yes. advice you received? Um, I don't know if this will answer the question, but it's it was actually uh, advice to try to get your teaching done well. That if you could teach well, it freed up your mind for all sorts of other things. And uh, I think I tend to agree with that. I think uh, in 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 business schools today. Uh, teaching is seen as uh, sort of a time-consuming obligation that we do, I mean, in part for the students, but uh, we don't want it to take up too much of our time, which I think makes sense. We should keep time for, for doing research. But I think if you can teach well, uh, it is a source of ideas, of discussions. It's a way to test ideas. And, uh, and actually, uh, interestingly enough, I think that uh, it's one of the best ways to move around in the world. So through teaching, uh, I've had opportunities in the US, I've had opportunities in China, I've had opportunities in India. And these opportunities in some case have led to research projects um, in others they haven't but uh, i do think that there is this piece of advice uh, i owe it to one of the people who invited me to michigan at the very beginning anil karnani uh, and he said you know just put in a lot of energy and uh, your teaching will go fine. And once your teaching is fine, everything else opens up. And I thought, uh, I think that's a very good piece of advice, actually. Um, Interesting. It's a way to get something sort of off the table, not off the table in the sense that you don't care anymore, but it's no longer a, a, a chore. It's no longer a concern. It's no longer uh, an issue. And I, I tend to agree. I think it, it helps a lot. So I'm very grateful to Anil for that piece of advice. Uh, thank you. Uh, about um, 
the common mistakes, common pitfalls that you see in junior faculty or uh, PhD students? What are the major issues that you see common uh, across uh, young scholars? I think getting, uh, it's difficult to say because I disagree with 50% of what I'm going to say, but I think it's, it's uh, focusing too much on, on a particular issue, question, topic, area. Uh, I, I think sort of, it's very important to focus but I think also being able to, to sort of put this element of research or this object of, of research in a much bigger picture, I think is a, a major, uh, it is a way to look at it differently, to rethink it. Um, and I think this, this change of focus is a very uh, important part of, of the job we do. And um, I think it's very difficult to do at the beginning because uh, sort of there's just so much to learn and know. And I guess I, the more I go, the, 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 the more I know I don't know. And I think knowing you don't know is clearly a big step forward to sort of not even being aware you don't know of things. And um, that's why I think it's a common mistake because until you've accumulated enough sort of awareness of, of what's around, it's very difficult to depart from the, the particular focus of our own research. Um, so I do think keeping an open mind, uh, doing different things, uh, being interested in topics that have nothing to do with what we do is, is potentially interesting. Unfortunately, time is a big limit, but uh, the, good, the good thing of this job is we choose to allocate our time the way we want. Whereas in most other jobs, we have much less freedom uh, to allocate time. But, um, I see what you're saying. And in some seminars uh, or colloquiums, uh, you know, there's a, for example, a strategy paper being presented and the OBHR, uh, colleagues say, oh, this is not my area. I don't need to listen. I don't want to listen. They don't even come. Or, or their comments are, oh, this is not my area. But um, actually, it's not like it's management. You know, you, you do expect them to know something because you've taken these uh, seminars together when you're going through the PhD program. Uh, it's a different uh, mentality. You're representing, you're uh, uh, giving a different perspective, which is very uh, interesting and valuable. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, Actually, I, I would pursue that, which I think, I think part of the development of the field has led us to sort of slice what makes organizations operate smoothly. And if they're, I guess, for-profit firms, what makes, what make firms perform well, we have sort of sliced it in a way that to some extent mimics the way in which firms themselves tended to be organized in the old days. And uh, I do think there's a bit of a limit about this. Uh, just the kind of research we do, you know, in, in some fields we formulate hypotheses, in others 
It is not considered necessary to formulate hypotheses. Uh, and it's unclear sort of why these differences are, are justified. In my view, they're not necessarily justified, but they very rarely get questioned. And I think on the other hand, if a, a school tried to do things differently, it probably would, would end up being marginalized just because sort of the institutional environment is such that it's very difficult to depart from these ways of viewing things. It would take a major crisis, I think. Like the pandemic? <laughs> um, I don't know. The pandemic might lead. I don't know how business schools will emerge from the pandemic. We'll, we'll see. Um, it's going to be a good natural experiment. Because yes. It's almost impossible to justify a $5,000 conference now for uh, travel. And the dean is going to say, why don't you do Zoom? <laughs> to say sure. So we will see. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. For the sake of time. Uh, what is one question that I should have asked you, but haven't? Oh, you ask all the right questions. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we could. I, I can't think of any that. Uh, I can't think of anything on which, you know, my point of view needs to be heard in a very big way. So I think, okay. uh, you know, whatever your interests are should guide your questions. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Pierre. I enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience Thank will you. agree with me. Thank you. Well, I'm. I'm. I guess I. I feel a little bit like, uh, as you can tell, my my own sort of evolution in the field has been somewhat unconventional, and uh, I. I don't think I. I'm certainly much. My contributions can't even measure up to the ones of most of your other guests, and. Uh, and I can't help but think that uh, maybe you made a mistake in, uh, in picking me rather than all the other people that I can think of. So thank you in any case. It was a pleasure. I don't think we'd ever had a conversation. Uh, we bumped into each other at conferences. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have a, what I think was a very pleasant chat for me. So thank you. Uh, the last comments were about a lesson in uh, humility. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs>